Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter number 17. Revelation, chapter number 17. We had a supplementary uh, lesson last week regarding Babylon, and the reason for that is because the subject was introduced in chapter 14, and now in chapter 17 and chapter 18, it deals with the subject of Babylon, and so we wanted to make sure that we had somewhat of a good foundation to build our thoughts on and be better acquainted with Babylon and what it was all about, and so I I hope that lesson gave you some insight and will be helpful. In chapter 14 and verse number 8, there is a brief mention of the fall of Babylon, and now John begins a detailed account of its destruction. In chapter number 17, we find him dealing with the, the religious aspect of Babylon, and thus the title of the message tonight is The Destruction of Ecclesiastical Babylon. This has to do with the religious aspect. In chapter 18, he's going to deal with the political or the, what you might call the commercial aspect of Babylon. And so there are two separate accounts, one having to do with the economy and one having to do with the uh, with the religious aspect. There's a lot of debate as to whether the Babylon mentioned here refers to a rebuilt Babylon or whether it refers to Rome itself. And the answer is simple only for those that have not really studied the matter. I've read the writings of a lot of different men, and a lot of them, you know, they think they've got it really nailed down. And uh, the truth of the matter is, as you read on, you begin to realize they're just writing a book and they're copying what somebody else has written and they've never really actually studied it through because I'm telling you the answer is not simple. And we could literally spend hours considering the arguments on both sides of the issue. Is it rebuilt Babylon or is it speaking of Rome? Not only do we not have the time for that, but we probably wouldn't be 100% sure of our decision after we'd spent that time studying it. What we do know is that Saddam Hussein, the mad dictator of Iraq, was... Here's the interesting thing is, in, in some of the notes that I've got from the past, I had the word is... But now it's was. He's dead and gone. He's not rebuilding anything anymore. But Saddam Hussein was rebuilding Babylon. He even went so far as to imprint his name on every brick that was to be used in the reconstruction of the city. And we can argue all we want about whether or not this is the city that John is speaking of here, uh, or whether he's speaking of Rome, which is known as the city of seven hills. And you'll see what I mean by that a bit later on as we study. 
But if you're not careful, you'll miss the point altogether. What should we care as to the geographical location of the city? What, what difference does it really make? Here's what we know. We know that it shall exist, because the Bible says it will, right? So we know that, and that's all we need to know, except for the fact that not only shall it exist, it shall be destroyed. And so the important thing to remember, and that was the reason for the message last week, is that when we talk about Babylon, wherever it is, it's not going to be just a city, but it is a system. It's a system of religion. It's a system whereby man is trying through his own effort to escape the wrath of God. And so that's what it's all about. Well, let's begin. And in the first seven verses, we see a description of Babylon. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which have the seven heads and ten horns. Now, notice in this description there are several phrases that identify this system. It says in verse number 1 that she is a great whore. Well, throughout the centuries, the word woman has been used as a symbol of religion for Example, we go back to the Old Testament and we, we, we consider Jezebel, and Jezebel speaks about pagan idolatry. When we think about Israel, Israel is likened unto the wife of Jehovah. We come to the New Testament and we find that the church is called the bride of Christ. And so religion is identified as a woman, just a means of addressing the subject. The picture here is that of a corrupt religious system whose philosophy is found in all false religions. In other words, this philosophy that we talked about last week, the philosophy of Babylon has permeated all man-made religions. And so rather than being the faithful bride of Christ or rather than being the wife of Jehovah, rather than having a legitimate relationship with God, we find a system here of people 
that's identified as, as a whore. And notice verse 1, that she sitteth upon many waters. Now, we've already considered in other places and nailed down the fact that water is symbolic of multitudes or nations. We don't have to guess about that. I'm not making that up because it is so stated in the Bible that the waters represented the various nations of the earth. And so here we find her sitting upon the waters, which indicates that her influence is going to be over all of these many nations And notice verse number 2 then, her influence reaches and corrupts both the leaders and the citizens. In in other words, this, this religion is going to be the very thing that is responsible for the corruption that comes upon the people. It says, "...with the, whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication." So. Uh, her influence, unlike the church being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, unlike that, there is a corrupt influence on the part of this religious system. And notice in verse number 3, another identifying mark here, is that she is supported by the Antichrist. It says, so, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman, notice, sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Well, we've talked about that already, and it's clearly identified in the Bible as being the Antichrist. So this verse is indicating that she is not only, and I want you to think about this, and I want you to get this, it's very important, that not only is she supported by the beast. Remember, we talked about the Antichrist and the false prophet. The Antichrist himself is going to be the one that we would liken unto a king, so to speak. In other words, he's the one ruling over the whole show. But there's also the false prophet that 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 is... Uh, the religious aspect of this unity. Now, here we find that she is supported by this beast, but keep in mind that also indicates that she is controlling the beast, at least at this point in the beginning, riding upon the beast, carrying the beast. In other words, the Antichrist and the Federation of Nations over which he is going to preside, they're going to support this religious system. They are backing her 100%, and she has such power that she is actually controlling the direction that it takes. Now, notice something else in verse number 4, and it's very obvious from this that this system is rich and formal. Unlike Christianity, religion has always put the main emphasis upon the outside rather than the inside. That's why Jesus said, you know, on the outside you appear, you know, to be beautiful and what have you, whited sepulchers, he called them. And But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones, in other words, rotten to the core. And so we see that the emphasis here is on the outside and upon the wealth. Well, you don't have to be blind to see that religion is big business today. I mean big business. And when I say religion, I'm talking about 
those religions and denominations that that are not made up of true churches. And it doesn't make any difference what denominational tag you put on them. You know, it's all the same. I remember preaching a series on cults many years ago, and uh, I didn't have any problem whatsoever whenever I was dealing with the Jehovah Witnesses and different ones. And, you know, I finally got down to some of the more what some people would call the mainstream denominations, and all of a sudden people began questioning me, well, how, how can you call them a cult? Well, let me tell you, regardless of the denominational name, any time that a, a group is teaching that salvation comes by anything other than by grace through faith, it's nothing more than a man-made cult. That's all it is. And sometimes we think, you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, I would, I would rather be, uh, I'd rather be a Catholic than I would to be a Jehovah's Witness, for example. What's the difference? Somebody says, well, I'd rather be a Catholic than to be a Muslim. What's the difference? Doesn't make any difference. I mean, their teachings might be different, but none of the teachings jibe with what the Bible teaches. Now, whenever we think about this, we can't consider this without, without being reminded of the vast wealth of the Vatican. Uh, a fellow by the name of Nino Lobello, he was a former Rome correspondent uh, for Business Week, by the way. And he called, and I'm going to quote, he called the Vatican the the tycoon of the Tibbies because of the incredible wealth that the Catholic Church has, the worldwide enterprises. He did a lot of research and he discovered that fully one-third of Rome's real estate is owned by the Vatican and probably it's the largest stockholder of bonds in the world, and that's to say nothing about all of the different industries that it owns, electronics, plastics, chemicals, engineering firms. Now, these are just things that, you know, it's general knowledge, things that we know about. Sometimes we wonder, you know, how it is that the Catholics have so much influence in the world today? Why is it that even if Notre Dame's not in the top 25, why does Notre Dame get on primetime TV every week, you know, during football season? Pretty easy to figure out. You cannot believe the influence that the Catholics have, and it's all tied to money. Uh, there's probably not a richer organization on the face of the earth than the Catholic Church. And so here we see a picture of wealth. Now, maybe you're thinking, oh, so you are saying that, you know, that this, this religious system is the Catholic Church. Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. I'm not saying that it is the Catholic Church per se. I'm saying that, that it's going to be the outgrowth of that and associated with that. Notice verse number five, because there's something else here that gives us more than a hint that Catholicism plays a part in this because it speaks about the mystery. It says, notice, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, uh, the great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Well, throughout all of the ages, uh, 
mystery has been characteristic of pagan religions. And the reason is simple. Why? Because Satan intends to deceive. He wants to hide the truth lest his, the subjects be converted from the air of their ways. So what do they do? They have all of these mysteries to keep them in the dark. And, and that's why, you know, the, uh, the Catholic priest would tell you, you don't need to read your Bible. That's what we're here for. We'll tell you what the Bible means, and so you just depend upon us. You're not scholarly, and scholarly enough uh, in order to understand it, and we're experts at that. So you just trust us. And, and the amazing thing about Catholicism is, and sometimes we wonder, well, you know, where, where, did, where did they get this particular practice or that particular practice? Because you go to different parts of the world, wherever you find them, and here's the strange thing. They've got some kind of a festival or something, some ritual or something that is associated with a long-standing tradition in that part of the world. And what they do in order to make inroads into that particular society, whether it's Mexico or wherever it is, as they set up camp there, so to speak, what they do is to take some tradition, something that's dear to the heart of the people, and they... They give it a religious flavor. They incorporate it into their beliefs and make something out of it. It makes it a whole lot easier for them to get the people to follow. But notice here that that this religious system that we're talking about is called the mother of harlots. Well, now that cannot refer entirely to the Roman Catholics because the first pope actually didn't come along until like the fourth century. Regardless of what you hear people say, that's what history reveals. And so, if this is, if this is the mother of harlots, in other words, if all of the false religions spring out of this religion, then it could not be just the Catholic Church. But certainly, the Catholics have done more to promote the spirit of Babylon uh, the system of salvation by works than any other religious organization on the face of the earth. And they've spawned numerous churches and called different councils throughout the centuries for the purpose of forming an ecumenical system to embrace all religious faiths together. I mean, they've been working on that from the get-go to bring all of the different religions and denominations, you know, un under their canopy. It was amazing. I was reading just, in fact, it was this afternoon, and a particular writer that I, in the past, had had great respect for. He's dead and gone now, but uh, he's a man that was highly revered, and many of you would recognize his name if I called it. And uh, I began reading uh, a, a, a comment that he had made and in the comment, he, he actually said that there, there are a lot of good and godly Christian people that are Catholics, and a lot of the popes have been good and godly men. And I vowed right then I'm through with him as a writer, because if they believe what the Catholic Church teaches, none of them are good and godly. Now, somebody says, well... I know somebody that's a Catholic, and I've talked to them, and I'm really convinced that 
I'm really convinced that they know Christ is their Lord and their Savior. Well, if they do, it's not because they believe what the Catholics are teaching. In other words, if they actually have received Christ, then they are evidently ignorant of what the Catholic Church is teaching, and they are associated with it, you know, in some way, you know, like the family, we've always been Catholic, and, and so that's all they, all they know other than that they heard the gospel and received it. So, you know, I'm not the judge, God is, but I'm telling you that nobody that believes what they teach is going to be in heaven. You cannot be saved and believe in what they teach. It's absolutely impossible, contrary to what the Bible says. And but over the years they have made this effort trying to bring everybody into this into this camp. There's a, another quite famous preacher that has a uh, now after Watergate. Now he has a famous ministry in prisons, and, and I've got to give the guy credit. He's done a remarkable work in the prison system, and I want to give him credit for that. But he's also been responsible for trying to unite the different denominations with the Catholics, and I'm telling you, that would be a a big, big mistake. Now, notice verse number 6. Not only is she wealthy, not only is she mysterious and so forth, but notice here that she is identified as a persecutor. It says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So we're talking about a religious system that has that has persecuted the people of God. Well, whenever we go back through history, we know that false religions, whatever they might be, have always persecuted God's people. Uh, back during 15 and 72, in six weeks... 50,000 French Protestants were murdered. Sir Robert Anderson estimated that Rome killed 50 million Christians. One Catholic theologian, now this is a Catholic theologian, expressed the attitude of Rome this way, and I quote, he said, so far as heretics, and of course, you realize that with them, anybody that disagrees with them is considered a heretic. So that would be you and me. And so it says, so far as heretics are concerned, heresy is a sin whereby they deserve not only to be separated from the church by excommunication, but also to be severed from the world by death. So that's what they believe. You know, and most people want you to believe that the Catholics are, you know, just a lovey-dovey bunch that just, you know, uh, that's just not true. Because they have stood for persecution all down through the ages and have been responsible, responsible for literally murdering millions of Christian people. Now notice in verse 7, here we see this evil system explained, at least to some extent, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. And so, now this explanation from the angel continues right on through the chapter. So, we go from the, uh, from the description 
to the development of the beast kingdom. That begins here in verse number 8. Notice how the beast is pictured in verse number 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and get this, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Well, you read that, and at first glance it seems like double talk or something. But notice here that that this is a strong indication that the Antichrist will be a resurrected person. Now, when I say that, understand when I say resurrected, I mean by that at least, at least from the standpoint of man's view, they will believe that this person has literally been resurrected. So I'm not telling you that that's absolutely the case, that it will be somebody that's resurrected, although I'm not saying that it could not be, and I'm going to explain that in just a minute. Now, we know the true identity of the Antichrist is not revealed until after the rapture. I remember years ago, and, uh, boy, there have been so many different ones years ago, uh, preachers trying to identify uh, the, who the Antichrist was. It's Henry Kissinger, and, you know, that's what they said. Uh, and some believe that. And, uh, well, the list goes on and on. Some said it was Hitler and different ones. Well, we don't know, but what we do know, and this is an interesting comparison between the Antichrist and Judas Iscariot. Let me just give you some food for thought here. And understand, I'm not making a dogmatic, emphatic statement saying the Antichrist is Judas Iscariot. I'm just telling you what the Bible says about the Antichrist and Judas Iscariot. Both are called the son of perdition. And this is a term that is that is used two times in the Scripture. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 and John 17 and verse number 12. So it's interesting that these are the only two individuals ever called the son of perdition. Not only that, but Judas was called the devil in John chapter number 6 and verse 70 and 71. He was called the devil by Jesus. And nowhere else in the Word is the devil ever used to describe a person, to identify a person other than Judas Iscariot. Not only that, but in Acts chapter number 1 and verse 25, it speaks about Judas. It says that he has gone to his own place, that is, the abyss. Well, here in Revelation 17, if you look on down in verse number 18, you'll see the Antichrist ascends. Where does he come from? Out of the bottomless pit. So Judas Iscariot went into the abyss, and the Antichrist comes out of the abyss. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, what difference does it make? Well, keep in mind that, that this is an imitation of the real thing. You see, Satan has his trinity just like God does. Everything God does, Satan has an, has a counterfeit. And so if, you know, if, if the, if this false religious system can convince someone, you know, that, that 
the Antichrist is the Christ, that he's being resurrected, you know, they're miles ahead of the game. It's a whole lot easier to convince people. You remember one of the other studies where the Antichrist received, what, a deadly wound. Remember that? And the wound was what? Healed. In other words, he died, and yet, and yet he lives. And that's what's being pictured here uh, in verse number 8. Now look at verse number 9, because here we see the woman's location being given. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Verse 8, verse 9. And here is the mine which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now, in verse number 3, remember, it says that this woman, this harlot, this false religious system was sitting on what? The beast, right? On the beast. But here it's talking about sitting on the seven mountains. Now, you say, well, how can that be? Well, it's, you you got to remember that the Antichrist is going to be, he's going to be the guy in charge of, of these nations that, you know, that make up the revived Roman Empire or the Federation of the European Nations or whatever you want to call it. And, and we know that Rome has been throughout history identified as the city of seven hills. I mean, everywhere you go, if you talk about the city of seven hills, everybody knows, well, that's Rome. Well, you know, maybe, maybe not. In case you didn't know it, Cincinnati, Ohio just happens to be called the city of seven hills. We were on Mount Adams there at one time, and that's one of the seven hills. And so uh, there are seven so-called mountains in Cincinnati, but this surely doesn't have reference to Cincinnati. Uh, but Rome is identified as the city of seven hills, but it doesn't necessarily depict Rome itself. We talked about the possibility of Babylon being rebuilt, and maybe that's what it's referring to. But notice in verse number 10, it, it describes for us that these mountains uh, are empires or governments. So we're not talking about literal mountains. We're talking about the governments. And, and, and notice the, the number here in verse number 10. Uh, the, the empires are numbered. It says, one is. One is. All right. What's he talking about? Well, when was this written? Well, it w- was written back in what, uh, 96 A.D., something like that, or 92, I don't remember. But it was written back in the time when who was in charge, who was ruling things? Rome, right? In other words, he says, one is. At the writing of this, Rome was in power when this was written. Notice he says, five are fallen. Well, you go back and read the book of Daniel, and what do you discover? You discover that there were five imperial powers before Rome. There was Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece. And so all of those existed before. So it says one is, and five, five are fallen. They've already passed off the scene. And notice what it says. The other is not yet come. So that undoubtedly speaks about these federation of nations that are going to be controlled by the Antichrist. Now look at verse 11, because here we see the beast being explained, and the beast that was and is not. Even he, 
is the eighth and is of the seven that goeth into perdition. Now, while the, the, the seventh kingdom will be the Roman Empire revived, the empire itself takes on a new dimension under the Antichrist, becoming what John is describing as the eighth world power. Now, I know maybe I've probably lost some of you here, probably as clear as mud, right? This, this, this seventh empire, remember, one is, five are fallen, and he says the other is not yet come, but it's going to. So this coming kingdom of which he speaks is what we think about as the European common market or the federation of nations, uh, you see. That's the one that's coming, right? But notice, in speaking about the very same thing, he all of a sudden, he calls it the eighth kingdom. And the reason he does so is because all of a sudden, instead of it being identified as before, now it takes on the identity of the beast, that is, the identity of the man, the Antichrist. It's kind of like this. Do you think it is by accident that the health care system they're trying to cram down our throat happens to be referred to as Obamacare? Don't you kid yourself. His ego is so big, that's what he's wanted all along, and that he wants that to be his legacy and wants it to always be known as Obamacare. Obama will take care of you, you see. That's what that's all about, to feed his ego. Now, whenever it comes to the Antichrist, remember, the Antichrist in the beginning is going to be the head of one of these nations. But then as the Federation is formed, all of a sudden he is appointed as the man in charge of all of these nations. And so he says the eighth kingdom is developed. And notice here in verse 12 and 13, and the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. Now, the Bible's explaining itself here, so just let it speak. The ten horns are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. And these have one mind. They're unified, all on the same page and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. The seventh kingdom that we're talking about here will consist of ten kings. That's what he tells us here in verse number 12. But notice, this empire will, the reign of this empire will be just for a short time. Verse 12, it says, one hour. And after one hour, in other words, as soon as this is put under the control of the Antichrist, what happens? It tells us they turn it all over to him. So now you have all of the ten nations under the control of one man. They have no distinct voice of their own. There's no more voting. Now we've got a dictatorship. He's running the whole show. And it might be that there's some opposition because Daniel 7, 8 tells us 
that he destroys three of the kings. So originally you've got seven, or ten rather, they give him control of everything. He turns right around as soon as he gets control and destroys three of the kings. And he becomes, as it were, the eighth kingdom identified here in verse number 11. Well, well, looks like he won after all. He's running the whole show now. He has all of this power. No man can buy or sell unless they receive the mark of the beast. I mean, he's got it made now. Finally, at long last, he has prevailed. Look at verse number 14 now. And these shall make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Well, amen? We win. That's the bottom line. And so here it's prophesied that the Lord and His army is going to overcome Satan's kingdom. Now, notice the scene reviewed here in verses 15 and 16. It just describes what happens. And He saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. That's what we said, right? So we're, we're exactly right on that. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, uh, these shall hate the whore. Whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. In the beginning, in the beginning, she was riding upon the waters and riding upon the beast. She was the one in control. And shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. I said earlier that when we think about this one world church that's coming, that it is not Catholicism per se, but rather it's the philosophy of Babylon that has been promoted by the Catholics. And here's the thing, and I want you to think about this. Whenever the rapture takes place and God's people are taken out of this world, all of a sudden, all of these things are going to start falling into place faster than you can even imagine. And here's what's going to happen. I believe that the Catholics because of their influence, their worldwide influence, that the Catholics are going to convince, of course, with the help of the Antichrist, convince all of the other religions to all join together in one big ecumenical movement. I don't know what it's going to be called, but I know what it is. It'll be like a one-world church. That's what it's going to be like. Controlling in the beginning, remember, riding upon the water, riding upon the beast. Religion is a powerful thing. And in the beginning, it's going to be controlling. You know, here's the interesting thing about the new pope. A lot, I don't want to get way off into this, but 
If you've been listening at all, you know that he is, through the different statements he makes and even the image he projects, it's very obvious that he's heading them in a different direction. Everybody knows that. And the thing about it is, they like it. They like it. That's what they've been waiting on. Now we can get women in the clergy. Now we can... Well, I won't even go beyond that. I don't think I need to. You, you, you know the statements that he's made. So there's going to, there's going to be an appeal... The people, you know, in the religious realm, oh, finally, at long last, we can stop all of this bickering amongst ourselves and we can all agree to not be disagreeable. We'll all just have sweet harmony together and worship the Lord together. That's the way it's going to start. But all of a sudden, as soon as everything gets in place, as it were, as soon as the Antichrist sees things just like a lion about to pounce on its prey, what happens? He turns on her and destroys her, as we see here in verse 15 and 16. And notice the destruction of Babylon, verse 16 through 18. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God, now here's a remarkable statement, and you need to get this. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill His will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Having been lifted up by her political alliance, this corrupt religious system will finally be destroyed by the political system. But to me, the interesting thing about this is that God is directing it all. Behind the scenes. Remember, I've said so many times, God either causes or allows everything that happens. It's not, look folks, it's not a mistake that we have the people in charge of America that we have. That's not a mistake. I mean, it's a mistake on the part of the people that voted, absolutely. But I mean, it's not like God said, oh wow, He knew that was going to happen. God allowed it to happen. And I'm telling you, there is a good reason for it. You see, sin has its own built-in punishment. God doesn't have to do anything to punish you for your sins. Your sin itself will end up destroying you. And so God is behind the scenes. And we, look, this will give you a peace of mind like never before if you'll get this in your heart and understand that the world is not whirling madly out of control, but rather God is on His throne. And everything that happens, happens within His permissive will. Everything. You want to sin? Have at it. God will let you do it. 
The world want to join with this religious system. There it is. Very appealing to the flesh. But notice in the end, it's destroyed. Now, what does that leave? Well, that leaves only the political aspect of Babylon. The religious element has been done away with. No more religion. Just the political system now. But God's not through. And in chapter 18, we're going to see God bringing it down too. You talk about a collapse of the economy. The world has never seen anything like what's coming down the road. And God's going to bring this world economically. He's going to bring this world to its knees and defeat the Antichrist and his system. Amen? I'm glad we're on the winning side. But if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're still on the losing side. And that needs to change. Never, never, ever assume that everybody that's there is always saved. You know, we talked about that this morning, didn't we? People that we think that are saved or not. I don't know. There might be someone here tonight that's not really saved. They, they were baptized. They joined the church. They said they were saved. But they've never actually really truly trusted Christ as their Savior. You better do that before it's too late. Let's all stand together. Tim and the musicians, you're going to come. We're going to sing a verse of invitation tonight.